to be here. I have watched Pastor Timothy weep in altars, uh, lay on the cafeteria floor at camp, seeking the face of God. I have witnessed him broken over young people. I've watched him handle challenging situations with young people that didn't have structure and healthy family dynamics, and he presented himself as a father figure in their life. And so I just want to take a moment and honor you and say, I, that's the thing I appreciate most about you, is I have literally watched you make room for the Lord and prioritize His presence. And that's what you're doing, Pastor, in this church. I know that from conversations that we've had. That song, I, I love that song. It's become a bit of an anthem for Michelle and I because... Um, I feel like it encapsulates uh, what we've tried to do with our lives for 22 years of ministry. Uh, honestly, the song's been out a pretty good while, and it took me a while to, to, to really catch on to it. But I was standing in a kids' camp service last summer. Uh, it was actually the last kids' camp service of the summer. Uh, and the kids' ministry team started playing this song on repeat. If you've ever been to kids' camp, you know we have a tendency to do that. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and this song began to play, and I just felt in my spirit, like, this is your assignment. Like, this is who you are. Uh, and so I love the song, but there's that phrasing in there that I think if we're not careful, we will misconstrue and misuse the phrasing. And I say that as somebody who now finds myself seemingly right in the middle of two generations uh, working with younger generations and at the same time trying to honor and serve older generations as well. And that phrasing of shake up the ground of all my tradition, break down the walls of all my religion. Uh, and if you're not careful uh, and you're an older person in the room, you might hear that from a younger person and feel like they are saying all the stuff that you like and have enjoyed and cut your teeth on in the faith, that's old and tired and gone and we need to move on. Because at times people my age and younger have used tradition and religion language in that way. To, to communicate that your day is done. Can I tell you if you're a little older in the room, your day is not done? And your traditions matter and they're precious, Right? You can become so anti-religious that you become religious, right? And uh, at the same time, I just want to exhort younger generations that it's quite possible to be 25 years old and have traditions that need to be shaken. And to have religion that are walls that are keeping you from really knowing God. So I, I, this isn't in the message, but I felt like it was a good launching point for where we're going to go tonight. So when you're talking about tradition, there's nothing wrong with having traditions. I, I love tradition. I love doing the same things over and over. I'm a Tennessee Vols fan, for better or worse. right? And I, I, I love going to Neyland Stadium and watching a game. And one of my favorite parts about the experience is the consistency. And I don't mean us losing. <laughs> I mean, the band marches through the streets at a precise time before kickoff. The team does the vol walk at the same amount of time before kickoff. The band enters the stadium and steps onto Shield Watkins Field, and they do the exact same routine every single time. 
And every single time, chills. When that tea is formed and they begin to play Rocky Top and the tea parts. And, the, and I'm just going to tell you, if I ever go to a game in Neyland Stadium and they don't do that, I'm going to be ticked off. That's a tradition, right? I have traditions in my family, in my home, things that we do on repeat. We go to the same restaurant almost every Friday night that I'm not on the road. We, we have little rhythms and routines. There's nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. Tradition becomes problematic when we decide in our heart that that's the way God does things. And we become... Um, moralistic about it, like this becomes a moral issue to us. This is the way God does it. He doesn't do it that way. This is the form that God uses. He doesn't use that form. And in the process of embracing that idea, we are eliminating the possibility that God can move in our lives in other ways. And eventually, over time, you memorialize tradition, and tradition becomes your God instead of God. And you cease to experience God because you have elevated an idol above Him. Right? Religion, similarly, is ideas that we hold about God that are inferior to who He really is. Ideas and thoughts that we have of Him, maybe because we had certain experiences in our childhood or certain experiences because of where we live geographically or certain um, religious or Christian teaching that we came up in, ideas about God that are inferior to the reality of who He is. And let's be real, all of us have those. All of us have variances of religion, thoughts of God that do not match His stature. And so God, tear down all of the walls, the, the parts of me that still think that my salvation is heavily dependent upon my works. Like, let me be so convinced of your love. Like, tear down every false idea that I have so that I can really know you. And so I point all of that out because um, I'm going to read a passage tonight that within it, God defies a lot of our conventional thinking. In American Christianity. He goes against a lot of our ideas about faith. He doesn't go against it. He just, he just doesn't follow the rules. And, and I, I think it's important. And I feel like I say this every time I preach anywhere. Because it's so important. A lot of times we read the Bible in hopes that we can crack the code. That we can hack the system. That we can implement a protocol. And we would never say this, but what we're really trying to do is to get God to do for us what He did for them. To get God to do what I want Him to do. And it's possible to take Scripture and try to use it to control God. That's strong. You have to sit on that for a minute. Because God is not subjected to Scripture. He is the Lord over Scripture, right? He is God. He's, he's the one who's God. And this Bible, which I cherish, I would, I would submit to you the probability that nobody in this room loves it more than me. You might love it as much as me, but there's no way you love it more than me, right? But these Scriptures are 66 books 
We have a God that has no beginning or end. And so there are certainly patterns. There are certainly principles that when applied, you become blessed. You just incrementally, systematically, consistently do what the Bible says and you'll step back and be amazed that things that were one seed in the ground turns to 30, 60, and 100 fold. Scripture works. But God has the ability to do things that surprise us from time to time. And I I want to be relationally enraptured with this God who doesn't always follow the rules. And so I want to share from a person in the Bible. I've said this before, and if you've heard me preach much, you've heard me say it, but I want to reiterate it. God is a person. People can be unpredictable. We don't read the Bible to learn information. We read the Bible to know a person. We don't read the Bible to get Christian life hacks. We read the Bible to become intimately acquainted with the Word, capital W. Right? So... We're going to get more acquainted with him through an experience that a woman had. This is a passage that years ago I was in and then you move on in life. And for the last few months I have found the Lord bringing me back to it really since the start of this year. And so I'll read a few verses and that's the way I'm going to preach it. 2 Kings chapter 4. I'll read a couple of verses, step back, expound upon those to the best of my ability and then dive back in. You won't have to find another spot in the Bible. We're going to stay right here in this particular narrative for the rest of the night. So 2 Kings chapter 4, we'll start with verse 8. I want to pray and then we'll progress. Lord, you're here. You walk among the lampstands. You are Emmanuel, God with us. I ask that over the next few moments, you would help me to not preach about you or for you, but to preach with you. I ask that over the next few moments, I would resemble you, Jesus. That I would be an accurate reflection of your nature and your character. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to not say anything that is incongruent with who you are. And I also pray, Lord, as I talk that you would speak to the deep places in our heart. While I'm using English language, I would pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to the depths of us through the experiences we've had in life, that you would whisper things that I'm not articulating. And I ask that as I talk, your presence would thicken in this room. Amen. One day, Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever Elisha passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. So the woman said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. What's interesting about this story is we are never given this woman's name. 
She simply lives under the designation, a woman from Shunem. So since we don't have her name, we've got to dig a little more because we do have a reference to her geographical location. So it's possible that right out of the gate of this account, there is a little bit of a clue from the Lord as to what he's doing. So the place Shunem, when you begin to break it down in original language, has a double meaning. And I don't think that was by happenstance. It wasn't an either or on these two words I'm going to give you. It is this and. First, it means the place of rest. And the second and equal translation is the place of change. And I think it's really important to know from the jump that real change happens in the place of rest. What a lot of us do is we look in the proverbial mirror and we identify things about ourselves that we don't like. Things that need to be fixed. Blemishes in the natural maybe, but all the more in the soul. And we want to be different. We see somebody that we would rather not be and we envision who we would like to be and we begin to go to work on ourselves. But if we're not careful, all we will ever become is a more disciplined version of the person we've always been. Someone who is better at time management, but not necessarily heart management. Someone who is more structured in the way they function, or is a little more self-controlled than they used to be, but they haven't been fully changed. Because really the only way we can change fully and completely is if we learn to rest in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. There are a lot of people in the world who are really disciplined and they don't do bad things. But they are not everything God intended because their real change is not in their self-discipline. Their real change is lying in the arms of Jesus. And I'm not really interested in being different in the sense that I know how to smile and put on a good face and act polite. I want to be changed in the sense that there is no swirl of bitterness or anger or jealousy or division in me. Because you can look like you're good and you can look like you're pleasant and you can look like you're united with everyone but this stuff in here not be exactly that. I don't want to just be able to bebop around and look like I'm happy. I want to live in such a way that there is no seed of anger on the inside of me. Where joy is indeed flowing up in, through, and out of me. And I'm not just putting on an act, right? I don't want to just be free from lust in the sense that, that I have self-controlled myself enough to not do this or not do that. I want there to be no lust on the inside of me. Yeah? That's possible. It's possible to be fully free in here, not just out there where everybody sees. But that kind of change doesn't happen because you 
exercise a high level of willpower, that change happens because you begin to reside in rest. What do I mean by rest? I mean I am confident in the love of God for me and that that love is unwavering and it is unfaltering and I am convinced to the full that God picked me and I live in that and on my days that I don't get it right, I am still picked that day. I rest in the fact that Jesus has set me free to the full. I live with a newfound confidence in what Jesus has done in me even if at times I don't always see the manifestation of it in my everyday life. You get what I'm saying? Like like some days you are more saved than you act. This will be a little bit of a play on words but sometimes we're trying so hard to act saved that we are messing up how saved we can be. And so we rest and receive change. In Him we live and move and have our being. Just a side note, rest is not vacation. That's not what that means. I mean, if you got kids, vacation ain't a rest anyway. It's exhausting. I'm like at the end of a vacation ready to go back to the office. I'm tired, right? Rest is not a day off, a week off, a month off. Rest is a state of existence found in confidence in who Jesus says He is, right? So the passage tells us that she's from Shunem. And we find that the prophet would come by and it just so happened that when he was in town, he would visit. Now, we understand in the Old Testament paradigm, a prophet was a big deal. Obviously, now the veil has been torn. The Spirit of the Lord is alive on the inside of us. But at that point in time, different paradigm. The prophet, in a lot of ways, was the embodiment of the presence of God. The prophet was the Word of God, the voice of God, the, the, the heart of God, the thoughts of God, the presence of God. And so when we look at Elisha and the woman from Shunem, we have to understand that she wasn't just dealing with a holy man. She was dealing with presence. And so the presence or the person known as the prophet would come and spend a little time at her house. He'd stop and have something to eat. She acknowledged that there's something special on his life. There's something significant. There's something meaningful there. And then the next verses move forward. I want to read verse 9 again. So she said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. So there's an evolution in her interaction with the prophet. It begins with an occasional meal. An occasional pop-in. A a sporadic from time to time just so happens he's in town and he would come and dine at their table. But as she began to interact and realize the significance of this person, this presence, she decided in her heart that 
an occasional sporadic surprise pop-in meal wasn't what she really wanted. She wanted something with a degree of permanence. She wanted something that, that, that had a, a little bit more of a connection to habitation instead of visitation. There was something in her that, that was saying these meals, these encounters, they are satisfactory, but they aren't satisfying. And there's a difference. It's, it's not just semantics. There's a difference between satisfactory and satisfying. So, so growing up, I know they do report cards all different now. I don't even know how to read my kids' report cards. It's a bunch of numbers on it. It's all this stuff. I, my wife, she looks at it. She pays attention to it. I don't know. I mean, we got A, B, C, D, and F. You might get an I, incomplete. But then when I was in elementary school, there was this other section, conduct. Y'all remember that? Some of of y'all just went twitching. You remember conduct. And and I don't even remember all the letters associated with conduct. I, I just remember that the objective was to get an S for satisfactory. Now, it's a pretty poor uh, grading scale for someone's behavior. Because satisfactory as a word simply indicates that's good enough. <laughs> you, 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 you like met the base level. You were satisfactory. I mean, not awesome, A for awesome, you know. Not W for wonderful. <laughs> not I for impeccable. S. You satisfactory. (laughs) There's a difference between satisfactory and satisfying. And it was the tension that I imagine this woman from Shunem was feeling. Y'all know the difference. It's a difference between a satisfactory meal and a satisfying meal. You know, some meals you're just eating to live. And then there are other meals where you're living to eat. And y'all know the difference. Some meals provided the necessary sustenance. So you didn't get the shakes. (laughs) And you didn't get a headache. And then you didn't grow weary and need to lay down. But then there are other meals that you sit at the table. And it is an experience. And your taste buds are exploding. And your mind is having all sorts of electronic responses or electric responses. Not electronic, you'd be a cyborg then. That's a whole other conversation. You know the difference. And, and I feel like that's what that woman was experiencing, him sporadically, occasionally, uh, from time to time coming and sharing a meal was satisfactory. It was good. She liked it. But there was something in her that said there's more. There's a different dimension of living. And so she began to make room. Somewhere within her thought process, she wanted to make the transition from God moments to God with us. You know, I'm a spirit-filled Pentecostal person. I've been 
in the assemblies of God my whole life. I got baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 12. I mean, this is all I know as far as my Christianity goes. I mean, I, I remember when my mom got filled with the Holy Spirit, and I didn't understand what was going on, but I knew she was lit. Right? And in our Pentecostalism, we place a value on those times when God shows up in a place. And it's as if the air thickens and begins to press against our skin. It's as if God is in the room and you were in a cold morning breathing and you could see your breath. It's like God is there. Some of us have experienced those on a hot June or July night at camp. You've experienced them at some point in your personal history. You experience them here and there in your church experience. I love that and I believe in it with everything I've got. I never want to let that go. I, I think it would be malpractice for me to have tasted and seen. For me to have experienced God in that way and to cease believing and putting pressure on the possibility that He could come like that at any moment. Like we should never in our church experience give up on the hope or become casual about the hope or even calloused about the hope or indifferent about the hope that God walks into rooms like this and the hair on our arms stand up and the tears begin to well up and something begins to rumble in the depths of our spirit. Never let go of that. But our Pentecostalism sometimes holds us back from the other side of the presence coin. God is with us. When scriptures communicated Him as Emmanuel, that was not just a nice Christmas song idea. God is with us. And I don't mean in that generic, intellectual notch in the belt, God is omnipresent and He is everywhere. I mean, God is with you. You don't live for God, you live with God. You don't work for God, you work with God. You don't give for God, you give with God. Everything we do is saturated in His presence. We're with Him. Just for a moment, if you'll allow me to just do a little exercise, I want you to take five or six breaths. Think about them. Feel the inhale and the exhale. I want you to now take your hand and put it where your heart is or on your pulse. I just want you to feel you got to get still enough. I'm having a hard time feeling mine because I'm talking and I'm moving. You have to get still enough. But do you feel your heart beating right now? I want you to hear this. You were breathing and your heart was beating constantly before you started thinking about your breath. And before you reached to feel for your heart. It was already there. It was already happening. You weren't necessarily conscious of it, but it was taking place. God is with you, friend. 
He is with you right here, right now. The moment your eyelids pop open in the morning, God is with you. As you drift in to sleep, God is with you. And God is with you while you're sleeping. The question is, are we awake to His presence? Are we awake to His presence? Sensing God is a thought away. He's always playing your song. It's just a matter of whether you're listening or not. You go to a retail store, and there's usually music playing, right? And most of the time, you're so busy doing your retailing that that you're oblivious to the music. And then a familiar song will begin to play from back in the 80s or the 70s or whatever your era was when you were living it. And it suddenly just stands out, right? And it catches your attention and it draws you in. But the music was always playing. It's just a matter of are you going to be attentive to it or not. He's always playing your song. He's never not playing your song. Man, I wish as Pentecostals we could evolve to the place where not only did we hold dear the truth that God walks into rooms like this, but that we held equally as dear the idea that I walk into rooms with Him. That I walk into spaces and He was there ahead of me. He's there beside me. And He'll be there when I'm gone. So this woman is trying to evolve to a different paradigm of presence in her life. So she says, I want to restructure my home. I want to restructure my world so that there's a place of habitation for the prophet, for the presence. And I don't know if you've ever done a remodel. I know y'all got one going on out there, but I know how how church remodels go. There's about three people doing the work. (laughs) Sorry, that was rough. (laughs) Same with my house. So I I bought, uh, my wife and I bought a foreclosure house in Hendersonville where we live nine years ago, ten years ago. And uh, it was back, you know, when the market was a little rough and... This house had sat empty over a year. It was built in the late 80s. It had, had nothing done to it. So, so we walk into this house, and uh, it needs a new roof. It needs all new windows. It needs two new heating and air units upstairs, downstairs. It needs all new flooring for the most part because, I mean, it's got stuff that's gotten water damage. Some of it smells like an old dog. I mean, it's rough. And I don't know how to do any of that. I am not a handy person. Now, if you tell me what to do, I got enough sense I can do it. I work construction with my dad, but like I can't, I can't remodel a home, right? I mean, this is what I do for a career, right? So, like, put this in my hand. Not so much a hammer. 
And I, I remember, um, I mean, you have to take out a loan, you know, and a part of the loan is, encompasses all the, the, the restoration and remodel. And I thought, well, I'll save, you know, a couple thousand bucks and I'll paint the inside of this house by myself. <laughs> so about the time that we bought the house, it was December. And it just so happened I had the week off between Christmas and New Year, so I'm going to do it then. Uh, the electricity wasn't on in the house yet. It's cold. You can only do it during the small window of daylight hours <laughs> that are at that time of year. And I'm in there painting. First off, it's stressful picking paint colors. Because my wife don't care about that stuff. She's like, you do whatever you want. You talk about stress. I hope I don't pick something she thinks stupid, even though she doesn't want to have an opinion on it. (laughs) She won't have an opinion on what color it should be until she walks in and that's a dumb color. (laughs) Y'all know, some of (laughs) y'all. And so, and then I'm painting it. And I can just tell you right now, I would have paid thousands of dollars for somebody to paint it after it was all said and done. There wasn't enough saved money. And to this day, 10 years later, every room I walk into reveals my ineptitude with a paint roller. Every space in that house has the markings of my inadequacy. Every room causes frustration and annoyance with myself to boil up because I did that and I did that and I didn't handle that. I, I, I don't like the whole concept of remodeling. It's inconvenient. It demands. It presses. And you have a woman here who said, I have found something in this person and presence that I find worthy of inconvenience. Not only that, but we do know that she's a wealthy woman. And so there's some financial expense, some cost that she has put herself out of to host presence. God's everywhere. God is with you always. But to really live with God puts a demand on us. Because you have to be attentive. And learning to be attentive requires a little work. And so this is what she put in the home. And we're going to get to an end. I'm going to just teach a couple more moments. And then we're going to get to the end. And we're going to show you how God defies conventional thinking. But I want to reread what she put in the room. A bed. A table a chair, and a lamp. I don't think it was mentioned, these items, just randomly. I think they can give us some clues on how to host the presence of God in our lives, how to host the presence of God in our church. Number one, the bed. I I think the bed represents, the obvious is it represents rest, but I think more so the bed represents a relinquishing of control, of not trying to control God, not trying to control all of our circumstances, not trying to control people, not trying to control results and outcomes, to let go of control. Why do I think that? You do get that when you go to sleep at night, you have relinquished control. 
It is scary. Some nights I have kept myself up thinking stupid stuff like what I'm about to tell you. You go to sleep and you are unconscious. And there are people on your street that are still awake. And some of them are crazy. And there you are unconscious. And people all around you are doing God knows what. You got your kids sleeping down the hall. You can't control. You're knocked out. They can do whatever. What you going to do about it? Oh, I sleep light. Yeah, right. When you sleep, you have said, I acknowledge that for a while, I'm not going to control anything. I'm going to have to trust it to God. I'm going to have to trust my safety to God. You might have a gun. You might have doors locked. But plenty of bad things have happened. Even though those safety items were in place. You have to trust that it's going to be alright. And one of the first ways you experience presence is trusting that God's got you. And trusting that He's going to take care of the scenarios of your life. And no longer striving to try to make everything work exactly the way you want it to work. You know, we're funny. You think, well, I never try to control God. God, I need you to do this. And there's a straight line between here and there. And, and that straight line is literally the only way that this thing I need to happen can possibly happen. And I need you to do it exactly like that because that's the most comfortable route for me. That, that's the least costly route for me. So I need you to do it this exact way. And in ourselves, we're trying to control. Or we stress ourselves out because people won't do exactly what we want them to do. And we're terrified that the things we're trusting God for or hoping God will do won't happen because all these people ain't doing what we want them to do. I want this job. There's nothing wrong with wanting that job. But you've got to learn how to lay in bed and rest. That it doesn't matter what those three people over there are doing. They might be manipulating. They might be scheming. They might be conniving. They might be excelling. But if that job over there is the one God has for you, it really don't matter what those three people do. God's going to get you there. you got to lay in the bed and rest. You'll be so busy trying to keep up with those three people that you won't stop to feel the heartbeat and have the presence. You'll be so busy running the rat race trying to make enough money to get to where you want to go that you won't stop long enough to feel the breath. Only way you can really have presence is to have a bed where you lay down in it sometimes and just say, God, you got this and I'm just going to relax in you and trust. Not only that, but they said that there was a table, which is a spot for, I believe, feasting. 
And I don't think you can really have the presence of God in your life unless you are a person who's going to feast on Scripture. Now, God's with you always, but being aware of it in large part requires that you become well acquainted with the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible becomes your language of engaging with the Lord. It's the Bible that reminds you He's here. He's trustworthy. He's always moving. He's always active. God cares for me. God loves me. God's mercy is new for me every morning. It's Scripture that repeats over and over again. Lord, the land that you've given me is a beautiful inheritance, right? It's Scripture that says, Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. It's Scripture that says, I'll know the pleasure of your presence and the joy of living with you forever. It's Scripture that stirs us up and you got to learn to feast on the word. Scripture just points you constantly to his presence. The next place that was mentioned or the next item of furniture that was mentioned was a chair. Which I would just imply is the place where you sit and think and meditate. A lot of times we think take captive your thoughts and all we're really categorizing that as is get all those bad thoughts and grab them and get them out. But, but what if the invitation is not just to stop all the bad stuff, but what if the invitation is that you can begin to govern your thoughts in a way that you are more aware of God on a consistent level? I know we're teaching right now. We're going to get somewhere in just a minute, I promise. I talk about this in, in my book, but you know, a lot of us have the idea that our cravings, our natural cravings, that we have no control over them. So, so Michelle buys me these things. They're, they're like dark chocolate bark. And they've got a little bit of almond in them and some sea salt on them. And I put them jokers in the refrigerator. They're in a little bag. It's a really nice bag. And after dinner, pretty much every night for a long time, I'd go grab two or three pieces of that. Eat, I mean, heaven. Eyes rolling in the back of my head. Delicious. And then I, and I'm still in this right now, this stretch where I'm trying to decrease my sugar intake, even though I had a very sugary drink from Starbucks before this, so. But I'll try to decrease my sugar intake. And the oddest thing happens. I'll get done with my meal. And that dark chocolate bark's in that refrigerator. Begging me. I'm talking about whispering my name. Like there is a yearning in me. It's, stu- it's ridiculous. But there's like this thing in me that's like, Nothing else on the planet will satisfy me other than those three bits of dark chocolate bar. And you have to restrain yourself, right? But it's amazing if you have enough nights where you restrain yourself, the yearning ceases. But then if you take one, then it starts all over again. (laughs) We have control over our yearnings and our cravings. The physical body works this way. Whatever you give it consistently, it starts wanting. Our mind and our thought and our soul and spirit are the same way. Whatever you give it consistently is what it wants. 
And so for some of us, we need to build a chair in our life where we start consuming God things more consistently so that what our soul and spirit longs for and craves for is more God intake. Now look, I, I don't, this ain't legalistic. This ain't about whether you get heaven or not. This is about whether you live in heaven on earth. This isn't about eternity. This is about living in the fullness of your salvation right here and right now. I like sports talk radio. I listen to it in Nashville. But sometimes I got to turn that off. And listen to a Jason Upton worship CD that I used to listen to 15 years ago. And not play anything else in my truck for two or three weeks but that CD. Because I want to recondition my mind to crave the Lord. Instead of drifting off into mindless consumerism. Like if you want presents, you got to build a chair. If you want presents, you got to build a table. If you want presents, if you want to really be with God the way He is with you. Because the question is not, is God with you? The question is, are we with Him? You know, I pray with my kids on the regular on the way to school. And I'll catch myself sometimes just habitually saying, Lord, be with them. And I will correct myself because, Lord, you are with them. That's the wrong prayer. Lord, would you make my son awake to your presence? Lord, would you remind my daughter to think of you today? Would you help her to be more aware of the fact that you're very involved in her life, right? And so how do you learn to be with God? you got to start building some furniture. And then there was a lamp, which indicates, you know, flushing out all darkness, nothing hidden. But also think of first or second John where it says that there, there is no darkness in Jesus. And so in some ways it's ideas that we've built up about the Lord that are inferior. Like maybe God's easily frustrated with me or annoyed with me. Maybe He's disappointed in me. Maybe He's Tired of me not having my junk together and he just is waiting for me to get my act together. But there's no darkness in him. Some of us need to build a lamp and light it and believe the best about the Lord. Yeah? So can we hang a few more minutes? We're fixing to turn the page. Verses 11 through 13. One day Elisha returned to Shunem and he went up to this upper room to rest. And he said to his servant Gehazi, Tell the woman from Shunem I want to speak to her. And when she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, Tell her, We appreciate the kind concern you've shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or the commander of the army? No, she replied, My family takes good care of me. It's interesting here. A lot of times we think of our relationship with God as us making requests of Him. But what happens when God comes to you and says, what do you want? I want to become the type of person that God looks at me and says, is there something I can do for you? I'm not, I'm not needing you to make a list. Pre, like I'm, I'm coming to you and saying, I want to bless you. 
What would happen? How would you answer the question if God said, is there something I can do for you? I mean, most of us got a pretty good list working. But it seems that she didn't have a request. So he imposes a request, and I feel like this request was a bit of a test. He says, can I tell the commander about you, or even the king about you? And, and I don't think God tests us uh, to cause us to stumble, by no means. But I do think from time to time, he poses questions and puts us in a place of testing so that it can be revealed to us what we're really made of and who we really are. And so he's saying, can I tell somebody famous about you? Can I tell somebody that's connected and high up? Can I make you successful? Can I make you a big deal? And her response is, no, I'm good. And and I don't know, I might be inferring too much into the passage, but the undertone of this and what I hear her saying is, who's a commander? I got you here. What's, what's a king? I've got presence. In her no, it is revealed what matters most to her. And what matters most to her was not esteem or notoriety. It wasn't connections that could help her advance in life. It wasn't a particular result or a desire. What mattered to her was the simple idea that her house was a place where the presence dwelled. And that was enough for her. She was satisfied fully and completely. And who was a king? What was a big deal about a king when she has presence? And I pray that something would happen on the inside of us and would happen in this church and would happen in our churches all over the state and all over America when we would cease to worry about lowercase kings and lowercase commanders knowing about us and patting on us on the back and giving us a little attention. And there would be something in us that says, I am satisfied with your presence. You are enough. You are the pinnacle. You are the objective. You are my inheritance. You are my cup of a blessing. You are the continent for which I set sail. You are my joy. You are my delight. You are my good pleasure. You are the apple of my eye. You are the epicenter of my world. It's you. Everything I've done is to just have you and you're more than enough for me. There's something beautiful in her no. There's something powerful in her no. I don't need anything. I've got presence. Can you be, imagine being so enamored with presence that you can't even come up with a prayer request? I've got him. Anything I ask for, even if I got it, it's inferior to habitation. Everything begins to change in your life. All that stuff you're hoping will work out, it might. But if it doesn't, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd rather have Jesus than treasures untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. And I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that stirring in me. There's something about that idea. And I don't know that I have arrived. I don't know that I've fully taken hold of that life yet. But I want to put my feet on that path, on that journey, to where I become the type of person that says, I don't care who knows my name. I got you. I'm not concerned with how everything works out. It's already worked out. You're with me and I'm with you. And that's a different invitation because typically we come to services like this and we want our stuff fixed. And we want our breakthrough. And we want our miracle. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not criticizing that. I'm believing that that's going to happen in some of your lives tonight and over the next two services. But I think what God's calling us to is to be like this woman from Shunem that says, I will reorder and reconstruct my life. I'll build a bed. I'll build a table. I'll build a chair. I'll build a lamp. I'll inconvenience myself. I'll cure my cravings. I'll center my cravings on Him. I'll do what i got to do to host His presence. Because that's the greatest delight. If uh, somebody will come play the keys or whatever. So the passage goes, verse 14. Later, Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? And Gehazi replied, well, she doesn't have a son. And her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elisha told him. And when the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, next year, at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. Her response is a bit dumbfounding. Honestly, it's a bit offensive. And it's certainly not faith-filled. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. But sure enough, verse 17, the woman soon became pregnant. And at that time, the following year, she had a son, just as Elisha had said. And in this moment, God broke the rules of engagement. Because a lot of us have spent our whole lives believing that the only way we can get a miracle like that is if we cross every religious T and dot every verbal and thought I. To have faith that God would do the miracle. don't sound like she had faith for a child sometimes God has enough faith for the both of you (laughs) 
You say, well, I struggle with this. Like, what? I struggle with it. And the best way I know to articulate it is she expended her faith. She exerted her faith for the main reason any of us should exert our faith. Not to get certain results, but to walk in relationship with a person. And she expended her faith on hosting presence. And God's reward for a presence hoster was to take dead dreams and make them come alive. To take take things that she had long since quit praying about and bringing them to fullness. See, presence people start getting miracles they ain't even praying for. They start seeing God work in stuff that they long have since forgotten. But every prayer you've prayed is before the Lord. There's just something that stirs my heart. I can't imagine the, the, the level of disappointment. I, I, don't, I don't want to be crass, but, but biologically we understand the dynamic here month after month. Hope. Optimism, disappointment, sadness, maybe a sense of rejection. And my guess is psychologically and emotionally, just like her body had a cycle, her soul had one too. First half of the month, feeling rejected, feeling disappointed. As the month goes, that flicker of hope stirring again, only to go through the cycle again. Months, years of disappointment. But she hosted presence. God saw her heart and he said there's a reward for people who didn't get what they want they decided to make me their greatest want and so she has a son We tend to think of faith as the currency to attain results, but faith in actuality is the currency to attain God. Some of us have been hoping so long for a specific outcome that we have forgotten what it's like to simply hope for and enjoy His presence. We have been wanting a situation to work out a certain way for so long that the majority of our prayers have been launched at that situation. That doesn't mean you're bad. None of this is condemning or an attempt to attach guilt to you. It happens to all of us. 
think what the Lord's trying to do in this moment is tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, remember me? I'm still here. All your attention has been on hoping that whatever that child is in your life would come. And what's sad is that some of us over time allow that lack of result to creep in so that we become numb and desensitized to the pursuit of Him. And we'll sing a song like, I'll make room for you to do whatever you want to. And I commend you for being here on a Saturday night. Some of us felt empty. We felt a bit numb. Felt a bit hollow. And I can't guarantee that this is the diagnosis, but I have a feeling for a lot of us in the room, it's because the baby didn't come. And that became the dominant figure of our faith. And the Lord came tonight sent me a few hours down the road to just point you back to Him and to tell you if you'll host presence again if you'll put your energy on being present to God the way He's present to you if you'll expend yourself once again to be with Him There's no telling how many babies will come your way. How many miracles will happen in your life. How many old prayers that he's never forgotten. That he'll begin to move on. And I don't know what you feel in this moment. I hurt for those who have been disappointed. I'd really... But maybe for the next few moments, put that aside and look into His eyes again. I know you've been praying for a miracle. But maybe for a for a moment. Redirect all of your attention on him. I believe what's going to happen and we're going to pray together in just a moment. I believe what's going to happen is as we pray with you tonight, the Lord is going to put a seed of hunger in you. He's going to do something on the inside of you that makes you begin to long for Him and His presence in a way that you haven't in a while or maybe ever. Now, once that happens, once He puts that seed in there, you know, He's, he's come by for a visit. You and I have to make the choice. Are we going to start building beds and tables and chairs and lamps? Or are we just going to live in satisfactory? I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I just declare over this church 
I believe that there's some prophetic unction on this moment for Journey Church. That as this church prioritizes presence, as this house makes the declaration that there will always be room for the Lord, as as this place makes the decision to structure itself around habitation, There are miracles that have been prayed that suddenly will begin to pop off and happen. There are hopes that maybe even have been let go of. And hey, we need to move on. But God never forgot them. There's stuff that's meant for Journey Church. You were praying the right things. You were focused in the right area. But now as you begin to center yourself on the person and on the presence, God is going to come to you and begin to rework and revive and renew stuff that you've long since forgotten. And then I pray for those in this room. As we come forward in just a moment and as God begins to stir your heart again. You're going to even see by the end of this week. Shifts in areas that you've been praying and believing for. This is going to sound weird. And it's going to sound. um, Well it's going to sound outside of the rules. But God. God gave a woman who couldn't believe for a baby a baby. So like we can just kind of put the rules aside. For some of us, we need to just take a little bit of a break on begging for something to happen. And we, we need to remember that we're not beggars. We're sons and daughters. And we need to rekindle our affection for the Lord so that our faith doesn't get consumed by that thing. I I feel like there's there's something on that and that's not something that I've ever really said in a church service because I believe in praying for something and being diligent about it. But I sense that for some of us in the room, our faith is being drowned because we're consumed with this situation turning out and God is in this room saying hey remember me remember me remember me lay down in the bed trust me with that for a minute and let's focus on me would you stand with me just keep your eyes closed for a moment because it can be a little uncomfortable to acknowledge that but if you're in this room and and I said that I said that thing of like Some of you need to take a break from begging because it feels like your faith is beginning to be drowned by a certain circumstance or situation that's consuming your prayer life, it's consuming your thought life. You read the Bible through the filter of that situation. You sing every song through the filter of that situation. Every sermon you hear is filtered through that situation. You're not bad. You're not in rebellion. God's not upset with you. God's not disappointing you. None of that's the case, okay? It's just that your Lord is in the room tapping you on the shoulder saying, Hey, remember me. If if you feel like that's where you are, would you mind lifting your hands so I'll know who to pray with? Wow. Wow. 
thank you so much. You put your hands down. And that's not to say you give up on that thing. It's just for a moment. Make a bed. Give Him control of that and rest in Him. Some of you are pretty numb. You're you're still a Christian. You're not sinning. You're not doing a bunch of wrong stuff. But you're pretty numb to the things of God right now. You say, I don't want to be numb to the things of God. I want to be resensitized. I want to be reawakened to His presence. If that's you, let me see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Here's what's going to happen. In just a moment, I'm going to pray with whoever wants prayer. And I'm not going to pray for your situation. We might get to that tomorrow morning, tomorrow night. I'm going to pray for the presence of God in your life. I'm going to pray that something awakens on the inside of you to where if you were asked, do you want to meet the king? You'd be like, no, I got presence. Where where something in you is stirred to the point of if that thing happens or not, I've got presence. We're going to lay in that bed tonight and we're going to trust that God can control and handle that. If, If you will, we're going to just become unconscious in His presence. How's that sound? Pastor Hope, if you'll just sing this, this I'll make room to you or for you for a moment and then, and then we'll respond. I want you to just begin to point all of your focus like you felt your heartbeat and like you felt your breath inhale and exhale. I want you to acutely focus on God right now as we sing this. Go ahead. Come and just begin to worship. Whatever you want to do. Here is where I lay down. Every lie and every doubt. This is my surrender. This is my surrender. And here is where I lay down. Every burden, every crown. This is my surrender. This is my surrender, and here is where I lay it down. Every lie and every doubt, this is my surrender. Come on, like the beating of your heart.
He's here. There's a solid percentage of you. Would you just come stand around the front if you raised your hand? I just want to pray with you. I believe there's a grace in the room. And from 22 years of ministry, there's a grace for hunger, for desiring the Lord. And I believe what's going to happen over the next few moments is seeds of hunger are going to be put into you where you would say, what's a king? I got presence. What's a result? I've got the Lord. There's just going to be this new desire that stirs in you. Pastor Hope's going to keep singing in just a moment while you're up here. My request of you is that you don't wait to be prayed with. You seek the Lord because it's real possible like the woman with the issue of blood that what's required of you in this moment as he moves is for you to reach out but don't no prayer requests right now alright no prayer requests right now God I want you and that's all I want and I'm going to say it and mean it I really do want these things to play out, but if they never do, I want to be satisfied with you. I want to be satisfied with you. I want you to be enough for me. I want you to be enough for me. 